The Unique Contributions podcast is brought to you by Relics. Find out more about us by visiting relics.com. Nowadays, cybercrime has has evolved into a massive industry, um, and and it's it's like a business. We have to assume now that all of us, our names, our addresses, our emails, some of our passwords are, are, are all out there. Hello, and welcome to Unique Contributions, a Relics podcast, where we bring you closer to some of the most interesting people from around our business. I'm YS Chi, and I'll be exploring with my guests some of the big issues that matter to society, how they are making a difference, and what brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking about cybercrime. The digitalization of physical services is happening at an unprecedented pace and across almost every sector. What does this mean for the threat of cybercrime? And what are we doing to prevent it? To explore these issues with me today is Stephen Tuplist, VP of Market Planning for Global Fraud and Identity at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Stephen, welcome. Great to have you. And thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks, Wyatt. It's nice to meet you and glad to be here. You are based near Amsterdam, I guess, The Hague in the Netherlands. How have things been there for you over the last few months? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the Hague. Um, it's it's been an interesting time, I think, for for everyone. Um, for, for me personally, I'm actually very used to working from home. Uh, I travel a lot in in, in the role I have, um, and when I'm not traveling, I, I tend to be at home a lot. So I think that that transition to working from home was was easier for me than most. Um, I think what has been interesting has been having the whole family around me as as I work. Um, so. Over the last few months, I've spent a lot more time than I ever have doing homework with uh, with my three children. Um, I know a lot more about history, geography, and physics now than than I have done for twenty or thirty years. Oh, I, I doubt that. With a with a PhD, uh, I'm sure this has been quite easy for you. <laughs> it's it's interesting how much you forget, um, but it's it's been very enjoyable. It's been in, enjoyable spending time mm. with them. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of PhD. I'm really curious. You went from having a master in French and then a PhD in space physics now to cybersecurity space. Love to know more about your journey to this point. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I finished school, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I, 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 I was inspired by my physics teacher at school, um, and I also really liked to travel and I liked languages. So I went to university thinking, Let, let's try and do something combined with physics and French. Um, I studied in, in Manchester. I had a year out studying physics in France. And then at the end, um, I, I still, <laughs> still didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do um, and was, had been enjoying physics. And so I, so I uh, went into the, the PhD. I had a few different options that, that appeared there. And one was uh, to do a PhD in space plasma physics. Um, I, I'd never really been uh, that fascinated by space, I have to admit, but it was still, it was intriguing. Um, and it was definitely the, the most interesting of the options I had. Um, so I, I spent three years doing my, my PhD in that. Um, thoroughly enjoyable. 
Um, but I think what I did learn from that was a couple of things. First of all, um, as I kind of already alluded to, my, my passions probably lie elsewhere. Um, and so I, f- I felt maybe this wasn't um, a, a career I wanted to commit to. I, I simply didn't have quite the passion for space that, that some people do have. Um, the other thing that I learned was in the space industry, projects take an incredibly long time. So um, generally, as we were doing research there, we would we would come up with a, a, a research project. Um, we would uh, I, the, the the work I did was based on analysing data from instruments on satellites flying in space, um, and to and and to to plan a, a research project like that. First, you have to define you know what is the question you're trying to answer. Then you have to um, develop the instrument that's going to get you the data for it. That instrument then needs to be aligned with a satellite, and then the satellite needs to be aligned with a rocket launch, and and that takes you know probably a, a five to ten year process to get to the stage of launch uh, you then launch it and then uh, once the satellite's flying you start getting data back and then you have several years of analyzing that data so these projects can be you know 15 years of your life um, I also had the the, uh, the 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 misfortune I guess of, of seeing one or two of these rockets um, unfortunately exploding shortly after takeoff um, mm. So not only are those long-term projects that you commit to, but there is a, a fairly high element of, of risk involved there as well. So I, I think what it did was it changed my perspective quite a lot. Um, so I once I, I completed my PhD, I went into the consulting world, which was really the other extreme. From the long-term to short-term. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so... So consulting, I thought, was just uh, very, very interesting. I got experience in a lot of different organizations very quickly. Um, and I got exposed to organizations within Silicon Valley. And, and for me, that there was the click because there was the, um, the, the, the technical uh, excitement, uh, the entrepreneurship there. Um, and so I, I started working uh, on projects with uh, tech companies in the U.S. who were then expanding into Europe. And um, eventually in, in 2010, I was looking kind of for the next opportunity there. And there was a few different firms that were making this expansion into Europe. And one of them was Threat Metrics. Um, and really, it, it was a no-brainer once I kind of understood what was what was going on there. Um, Threat Metrics had really cool technology. It was in this fraud prevention space, which, which I didn't know a lot about, but I realized that this was a sector that I could really get passionate about. Um, so not only was it an exciting uh, tech company, they were offering to bring me on as the first person on the ground in Europe and build a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sector was, yeah, it was really meaningful. Yeah, to me. great timing. Yeah, so so the Threat Metrics product basically enables clients to to prevent fraud. So we, we're, provi- we're providing fraud prevention techniques for the likes of online banking, e-commerce sites, uh, media streaming sites, and any um, company that provides services to uh, an end user base. Mm-hmm. You say that was no brainer, but I must not have any brain because at that point in 2010, it would have gone right over my head and I would not have seen the pr- potential that you did. But I'm glad you did. And then I'm glad that Threat Metrics found you. Um, You sound like a real, true Renaissance man, Um, from humanities to science to engineering, everything in between. So like our other guests uh, that have been here and have done so well, I think this session is going to be a great lesson. Um, 
Can you please start by painting a picture of what's going on out there in the dark web and how cybercrime has evolved in the last few years? Yeah, I, th I think the, the best way to do that is to go back a little bit to the start. Um, and in particular, the start of, of, of commerce moving online, moving onto the internet, starting to give you that ability to buy things online. And, and what happened very, very early on was that a second marketplace started opening up. And that secondary marketplace was selling stolen information, um, and in particular, uh, stolen credit card details. And uh, it was a natural progression for, for criminals. Um, if they had the ability to use stolen credit cards, um, literally stolen in, in shops, why not use that information when you try to buy things online as well? Um, so when I kind of got into the, the sector the first time, e-commerce was really trying to battle that problem. Um, and it wasn't just there. There were other uh, new services emerging online. So the online dating industry, for example, was, was also quite an early adopter of the digital space. And they had a very different problem. They, they were focused on, on scams, uh, the kind of scams we still see today in the social networking space, um, where people uh, create accounts on their pretend to be other people, try to build a relationship with you, and ultimately try to ask you for, for money. Um, so those were problems, you know, early on. And, and the problem was, obviously, it had an impact for customers that were actually involved in that fraud, they would find that their cards had been used to, to buy a purchase. Um, and it would often be quite difficult to get that money back. Um, and similarly, on, on the dating side example, if you've uh, ended up paying money somewhere, chances are you were never going to get that back. So it had a real impact to, to individual people like ourselves, as well as then impacts to, to the organizations as well, whether they're e-commerce or then later on um, online banks. Um, and if you look at the, the kind of the sophistication of cybercrime and how you fought it in the early days, it was actually really quite easy. Um, most of the time, if you could identify the IP address where the fraud was coming from, you could block it. You could just uh, ignore it. Um, but the complexity started to occur as fraudsters started to understand how to change their IP addresses or how they could hide behind things like a proxy server so that you couldn't identify where they were coming from. Um, and at the time, as I was joining, what, what was interesting with Threatmetrics was that they had this novel idea of being able to try to gather digital intelligence. So um, to be able to identify if these proxies were being used to hide the fraudsters. Um, and so they thought if, if the IP address isn't the key anymore, maybe we can have an identifier for a device. So if this fraudster is using this computer and we can identify it, then we can block the computer. So that was a little bit kind of what was happening in the early days. But if you look nowadays, cybercrime has, has evolved into a massive industry. Um, and and it's, it's like a business. There, there's knowledge sharing. There are sophisticated tools being used. You see these automated bots, uh, these, these botnets, these networks of, of, of devices um, that have been kind of captured and convinced to carry out attacks on sites. So that the scale of cybercrime has completely changed, as have the, the level of um, 
stolen or breached identity data. I mean, we've, we've heard in, in the press over the years, many large, well-known businesses where there have been data breaches. And we have to assume now that all of us, our names, our addresses, our emails, some of our passwords are, are, are all out there uh, for those that, that want to buy them and, and, and test them. So so the, 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 the sheer scale of cybercrime has changed. Um, and what we're seeing now is that fraudsters are actually, they've always been shifting to focus on how they can be successful. But one of the, the, the recent trends we've seen is a move away from fraudsters maybe accessing our accounts directly and stealing from us. And actually going back to those scams that, that I mentioned earlier from dating, the different kinds of scams now to, to convince you or me to actually move our money and pay it into a fraudster's account. Right. But having a story that's so convincing that we're doing it willingly and not realizing we're being scammed. Um, right. So it's it's a scary world out there and, and criminals, you know, ultimately it's much easier and safer for them to try to commit this types of fraud and crime online than walking into a bank with a gun. You are keeping this so nice, clean, diplomatic, but I need some juicy stuff. So <laughs> you must have come uh, across some very particularly interesting stories about frosters who have been caught without necessarily mentioning names. What are some of the most sophisticated ways that you've seen fraudsters operate online? Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely got a few stories I can, I can share um, and maybe... Uh, I'll change the angle slightly and, and, and highlight a little bit how we've dealt with them or how I've seen companies deal with some of these forces as well. So um, if I go back to the scams, first of all, um, in, again, thinking of an early example with those dating sites and, and, and scammers, one of the problems that, that you have to deal with is if, if you can identify these fraudsters um, on your site, what do you actually do about it? Um, so you could just block them. But the problem is if you block them straight away, they know that you're onto them. And that actually is only going to help them study that a little bit more in detail and figure out how to change their attack and come back and try and get past you again. Um, so one thing that, that for me, I, I remember very well in the early days was that some of these dating sites would use our technology to identify the scammers. But rather than blocking the scammers, they would lead them to a second site, which would look exactly the same as the original dating site, um, but was actually a fictitious dating site where they would bring all the scammers and all the fraudsters together and they could effectively play against themselves. So I, I thought that was that was always an interesting... Uh, Lovely sting operation. Exactly, exactly. Um, but you asked, yeah, I mean, another example about actually catch, catching fraudsters. So... Um, in um, I guess back in 2014, 2015, um, we we saw that the banks that we were working with were getting more successful at being able to identify the fraud because of all this rich uh, digital intelligence that we could provide. But there was always the frustration that the fraudsters and the criminals, they never got really caught by the police and went to jail. And, and one of the reasons for that was that historically that there, there wasn't really the evidence that could be used in a court of law, or even if it was there, um, maybe it, the, the, the police 
didn't really understand how to use it. So there was a um, one specific case in 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 that year where. Um, there was uh, some fraud. It was it was clear that there was some fraudulent behaviour, and a number of online banking accounts were being accessed, and money was being moved out. And in one way or the other, I don't remember exactly how, but the police had identified that there was a potential link to a hotel room, and they did a raid on this hotel room, found and arrested a couple of men in there, and seized a laptop. And that laptop was actually open at the time in an online banking session. Um, and they, so they now had suspects, they had a laptop and they had, uh, records from several of the UK banks highlighting, uh, fraudulent transactions, fraudulent money, t- uh, transfers. And they were pretty sure that this was all linked, but they couldn't link them together. And so, uh, one of our banks, one of our banking customers came to us and said, can you help us explain the data that we have through your service to the police? Um, so I, I got personally involved there and worked together with the bank and, and one of the uh, police officers to um, look at that device. And through doing some analysis around the device, we were able to uh, identify how that device was linked to the individual events and that device ID that I mentioned earlier. Um, and so I, I, I generated, a, I wrote up a witness statement for that to help in the prosecution there. And it was really one of the first times that we were able to see the police actually prosecute um, based on actual online crime using digital intelligence. And, and these uh, criminals got, got locked away. So for me, it was you know personally very satisfying. But I think as, as a, for the industry as a whole, it was nice because it started changing the focus and, and, and made people think they could actually succeed in prosecuting some of these criminals. Right. That's, I think, probably what they wanted to see is a proof that it can be done, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, the pandemic, I'm sure, has caused not only the disruption and suffering to the most of us, but it has become an exploitative opportunity for these frosters. So what is the impact of COVID on financial crime as you can see already? So it's changed actually during the course of the pandemic. Um, so at the, at the beginning, as, as these lock time, lockdowns started coming into force around the world, when we looked in our data, we saw that actually the fraudsters were being impacted as much as the rest of us. So fraud actually decreased initially. Um, and then as we've, as we've seen this, this rapid growth in digital transactions online, as everyone starts shopping from home, as everyone's logging in uh, remotely to services from home, uh, we've seen the volumes of, of good transactions go up very, very fast. And, and the fraud has gone up as well. Um, luckily, the fraud hasn't gone up as fast as the good transactions, um, at least not in the data that, that we're seeing. But what we do then see is the fraudsters are shifting to the opportunities that are out there. So um, you yeah. can imagine that everyone working from home, um, not everyone is used to doing that. Not everyone has the, maybe the same um, security in place. Um, there's, there's potentially opportunity for fraudsters to take advantage of that. Um, and then there were also new opportunities for, for new types of fraud. So 
um, around the world, we see the government's, um, you know, government supported loans that are being made available to businesses to get them through the right. pandemic. And they are absolutely the new target for the fraudsters. And, and so we're seeing easy money. It's easy money. Easy and, money. and the yeah. thing is, um, those 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 programs are being rolled out rapidly so people can take advantage. And that with a bunch of holes. Exactly. Exactly. And the fraudsters are all over that. And the amounts are small, too, isn't it, Stephen? So that, you know, nobody's really going after the 200 frauds. They, they want to go after the 2 million fraud. And, and some of these can be lost. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that, that's, that's, that's definitely a concern. What would you say that we can do to protect ourselves and not help criminals get away too easy? Um, yeah, a, a lot of it, and I hate to say it, but a lot of it comes down to common sense. Um, I, I've seen plenty of examples of of fraud prevention experts as well being caught out. So we should never be, uh, you know, embarrassed or or, or um, concerned about sharing, uh, you know, questioning something. But you know, only share what personal data you need to share when necessary when you're online. Use trusted websites. If you're going to buy online, buy from the the, the websites that you can trust. If you're using a new website, you know, just spend a bit of time checking that it doesn't, you know, that it doesn't look a bit dodgy. Um, look out for anything unusual and suspicious. Definitely don't trust anything that sounds too good to be true because it probably isn't. Um, and, and then the last thing is, um, especially on the payment side, keep an eye out on those bank statements. I think that's also a big risk that we don't necessarily look at those as much anymore, um, especially as we're sometimes moving from getting paper statements that we would open on a monthly basis and scan through them to now having everything online. Um, that's what fraudsters also you know, are, are playing on, that people maybe don't notice right. those small transactions coming through. Where there is prosperity, there is a magnet for fraudsters who like to take shortcuts like parasites. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, uh, that background. Shall we move on to how threat metrics and more broadly LexisNexis risk solutions are addressing these issues? You're working at the extreme front of digital identity intelligence, which is all about aggregating billions of anonymized transactions, I guess, to differentiate a trusted customer from a cyber attack. I understand you can do this in really near real time. Can you tell us how it works without revealing any undue trade secrets? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I mentioned earlier the concept of, of a device ID, an identifier for, for a device. Um, if, if, you, if we start simply and we, and we look at kind of the initial approach to building fraud rules for, to, to catch online fraud, we would take a device ID and, and we would look for unusual things related to that. And so a couple of really simple examples would be, um, is one device actually buying things online with more than, say, two or three different credit cards? Um, that could be an indication of a fraudster with a list of stolen credit cards that they're testing. Um, or with that one device, do I have, um, you know, really quite a number of different email addresses that I'm using to log into different accounts? And again, that could be indicative of, of um, someone having a list of compromised data. So um, in fraud analysis, we, 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 we have that data, we have the digital intelligence, and we combine it with the with the event data, the transactional data, whether it's a credit card number or, or um, an email address or a phone number or a name or something like that. And all of those pieces of information are anonymized um, or hashed in the database. And 
what we can do, what we what we do over time in, with those fraud rules is we also look to, to compare over time. So um, if I log into my account today, how does that behavior compare to when I logged in yesterday? Is it, do I have this, am I using the same device? Do I have the same kind of relationships between those, those identifiers? And what we realized over time actually was that we were kind of creating a, a kind of digital identity. And, and nowadays everyone talks about a digital identity without thinking about it. But for us, I guess six or seven years ago, we, we, we started to think, yeah, this is a form of identity in the digital space. Um, and that's you know, one of the reasons we refer to that uh, solution today. So, so basically what the solution is doing is in real time, every time we analyze an event for one of our clients, we're, we're taking the data from the event, we anonymize it, and then we, we create this digital identity and we see how it aligns with the digital identity's history in that global network um, with the goal to basically understand, is it looking like normal? Or is there something different? So if I log into my bank today, am, is, is, my, is my digital fingerprint for this event, does it generally match what has logged in historically into my account? If it does, then trust me and let me in. If it doesn't, then raise a red flag to the bank. Right. This sounds like a smart person overcoming a smarter person and yet another smart person on top of that. <laughs> For businesses, particularly online consumer-facing ones, there is probably an ongoing challenge of balancing between convenience for the customer and security verification. Are there different approaches for different regions when it comes to combating fraud? And are there different, different approaches to security versus convenience between different generation, perhaps? Yeah, um, and and that's one of the fun things of of the international role because there there are clear differences, um, and 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 I think they're changing over time. So if we look at the US, for example, I would say that on on the in the digital world or the online world, the focus is absolutely on customer experience. Uh, customer experience is is first in America, whether you're in in a store or whether you're online, um, and that can that 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 experience can come at at a raised um, level of risk uh, from a security point of view um, if you contrast that to parts of continental Europe and parts of Asia Pacific um, you, in in those cultures you're much more um, accustomed to stronger what we call multi-factor authentication when you access services online so you'll be asked uh, for a username and password and then there'll be another step maybe you'll be you know challenged in some other way so it's it's the, the experience the user experience there is more friction as we call it um, but it's generally more secure and and therefore the 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 risk of fraud and the rates of fraud tend to be lower um, the uk is probably somewhere in between the two um, so that's what you see kind of generally around the world um, and and then uh, also consider that type of industry and service there are also different levels of, of security the the generational question is 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 a really interesting one because what I described is probably the norm right now. And I think that the shift is going to come from the younger generations, um, the the way that, 
you know, children at school and, and leaving school now are so familiar uh, with all this digital technology and the latest phones and, and devices. So what, we, what we're seeing with, with the younger generations, and I think what we're going to see being a bit of a disruptor here is that um, those services that are more securely protected with higher levels of friction, with, with stronger authentication techniques, are probably going to turn, um, turn away those younger people. That sounds like you have to go through more doors to enter finally to the performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're going to look for other services offering similar service, but with an easier entry point. Um, and so we are, from a security point of view, we are going to have to adapt um, to meet the expectations of younger generations. At, at the same time, I think there's an educational part that's the responsibility of all of us, um, uh, public outreach, schools, uh, organizations like ourselves, to make sure that the young are really aware of the risks online and that they shouldn't be too open with sharing their data um, and just to, yeah, just to protect themselves a little bit. I suppose they need to know that there's a pain at, on the other end for being careless. Exactly, exactly. For adults, it could be loss of you know, financial assets. For young people, it might have to be an embarrassing situation. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. And and it's I think it's something that, that we can do more of. It's really interesting. I, I spent um, I spent two years, I dragged my, my family to, to Silicon Valley uh, for two years to live out there. And when they were in the, the American schools there, uh, they really had lessons that focused on exactly that, how to be safe online. Um, and, and I feel since we've moved back to Europe, I feel that we do that a little bit less in Europe. Um, so I mm -hmm. think that's something we should do more and make, make uh, children more aware of. Yeah. I think that uh, this trade-off is uh, one that companies have to make also, but we as individuals have to make between our privacy and convenience. Uh, and, and when we do that properly, we can take responsibility for the choices that we make. So I think as a society, we've become increasingly aware of how our data online is, is potentially being harvested and, and, and used uh, for marketing or, or other purposes. And that's driven that focus on, on you know, our data and privacy around it. And, and it's introduced regulations to protect our data. And, and I think that that's, you know, we're on the right tracks there. And um, certainly in, in Europe, we have the, the GDPR regulations and other parts of the world have been looking at all that. I think the looking at it from a cybersecurity point of view, um, we just need to make sure that, that these regulations consider um, where private data can be used in the right way to prevent crime. And so, you know, we sometimes see regulations carving out the ability to use data to prevent crime. And it's a really important distinction there. Otherwise, that can also potentially impact cybersecurity in the future. Indeed, we need to make sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly, exactly. Uh, because we have to fight those fraudsters. Exactly. And, and, and that, you know, there's, there's the regulation side there that I think it's important for us to get that right. And then at, at, at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, the, you know, the way we design our products is also we follow what we call a privacy by design approach. So, um, you know, those anonymization techniques that I mentioned earlier, it's what you end up actually being able to develop products that can identify fraud by, by creating these anonymized digital identities. And you actually don't need to know who the person is behind those digital identities. That's right. So looking ahead, 
Um, keyword these days, of course, is AI machine learning. How is that going to uh, come into the future of digital fraud prevention at Threadmetrics? So we're already using machine learning today, and we're continuing to build that out. And, and one of the reasons that that's so important is just the sheer amount of data. So uh, I, I talked about those simple fraud rules earlier. Um, and fraud analysts used to go in and, and you know change those rules on a weekly basis. But the volumes of data, the number of events that you have to look out now, it's not possible to do that manually. So you need to use machine learning techniques to optimize those rules, to learn from the train, the changing fraud trends. So I, I think that's, you know, one area that, that machine learning is being used. Um, I think, you know, there's, an, there's a couple of other things that we're doing in the short term, looking ahead with the, the threat metrics product. And, and that's to actually continue to bring in the latest digital intelligence, um, like, uh, like phone intelligence. So as everyone is, is turning more and more to the mobile channel, the data associated with the mobile channel is becoming increasingly important. So um, as we bring more data in from that and also from uh, emerging technologies like behavioral biometrics, it just increases the data again and increases the need for this automized, mach automated machine learning uh, to optimize things. Does that give us the future in which we're not just doing a cat and mouse catch up post fact? But perhaps something, a solution that is so innovative that maybe it can really prevent them before they happen? Um, I'm not sure that we're ever going to reach that stage. Um, I, I think that biometrics specifically is, is generally going to have quite a big impact. Um, and by biometrics, in this case, uh, rather than behavioral biometrics, I, I'm thinking more about the, the, the biometrics from facial recognition, fingerprints, things like that. They, they are really quite secure, um, although not impossible, impossible to beat. Um, the problem with, with some of those technologies is, is adoption, though. Um, it, it, you can have a really secure um, piece of technology, but if only a small part of your population actually want to use that technology, then you still haven't solved the problem. Right. And is, that, is adoption, Stephen, a, a matter of economics, or is it a matter of uh, a convenience choice? I, I think it's three things. It's it's it, it can definitely be economics, especially in different parts of the world. Um, it's choice. Some people just don't like the idea. Um, and third, it's um, it comes back to the generational aspect as well. I think that uh, with with biometrics, the younger generations are probably very comfortable with it. Some of the older generations aren't very comfortable with it, and and it's maybe difficult for them to use. Um, so that that's generally a problem for some of these new techniques not being able to be uh, adopted. And if they're not adopted across the board, then obviously the fraudsters, they adapt and they figure out exactly who to target that isn't using that, for example. Um, plus, we talked about scams earlier. And if I use biometrics, that doesn't change anything when it comes to scams. They'll, they'll just, I'll still carry on sending my money to the wrong place and I'll smile happily at the camera. <laughs> yes, often it is us who open the door for them. Exactly. <laughs> Voluntarily. Exactly. You know, in a slightly um, different scale, but in a parallel manner, I have spent the uh, past few decades in the publishing sector where we've been fighting for copyright issues, right? And IP protection. And I've always said three E's as a principle. First is educate people that stealing 
is stealing, whether it's digital or physical goods is stealing. Second is economics. It has to be such that there isn't as much economical incentive to steal than to earn it the right way. And then the third is enforcement. When all else fails, there's got to be exemplary enforcement to show people that there's a price to pay for crime. I wonder if these, these, these thoughts that you had kind of shared with us today in different parts of the, the uh, conversation are similarly applicable to online and cybersecurity fraud. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's an interesting parallel. Yeah. Well, I've learned an awful lot from you today about cybersecurity and the unique con- contribution of LexisNexis Risk Solutions team for uh, combating this. Before I let you go, though, I'm very curious about what else you're doing these days to keep yourself, um, you know, kind of balanced uh, and not constantly working or um, doing homework with your children. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, I've always liked to keep fit, um, and and I love swimming, and I haven't been able to swim really the last uh, year. Me too. So I've I've tried to figure out a different approach to keeping fit. Um, so if I go back to my last years at school and, and university, I used to skip as part of my fitness routine. Um, and I, uh-huh. I saw an article in a paper recently uh, about skipping. And I thought, you know what, that I can do that in the home. I can start doing that again. And I went online. I, I bought a, a skipping rope. But what I discovered is there is a whole new world out there of skipping ropes, jump rope workouts that, that I don't think existed five years ago. It's a booming business. You could spend 10 euros. You could spend 150 euros on a skipping rope. So um, I, I now have a kind of mid-range skipping rope. Um, I'm skipping every day. There's, there's lots of I'm hoping to graduate to the high-end <laughs> skipping rope one day. I think like the bikers do or people like us golfers think that it's the equipment that's going to get us better scorecard. Exactly. And I think my children think I'm crazy. But yeah, that's my, my brand new world at home of, of, of keeping fit right now. Fantastic. Stephen, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and I hope that the audience has learned as much as I have. Thanks, Oyas. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released. In our next episode, we'll be talking with Anna Dicheva, who runs read exhibitions in Russia, the Middle East, Turkey, and the UK about the role of the events industry. Thanks for listening. 